Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. So normally this is when you'd hear a voicemail from one of our awesome listeners. And Tamar and I are so grateful that you've been listening to our wonky dork fests. We love your questions. Please keep them coming and we will keep deploying our MO of trying to sift through the data and trying to find out what's really true. But we want to do something a little different this week. Instead of taking one of your voicemails, we want to talk about the insanity that went down on Cracker Barrel's Facebook page. Cracker Barrel's new plant-based breakfast sausage has sparked outrage online, apparently, from some of its customers. The chain posted on Facebook about its new Impossible Foods sausage, with some customers welcoming the new meat alternative. Others are pushing back at the company now for the new addition. And I'm not even on Facebook. I used to be, but then I, I, I shut down my account. But it leaked out of Facebook pretty fast, and it was in my very own beloved Washington Post. It was on CNN. It was on the Today Show. This story went everywhere. Brooke Schaefer joining me live. Brooke, please explain this to me. Why are customers so upset? Yeah, it seems like nothing is safe anymore, Natasha. So what happened was Cracker Barrel decided that it was going to offer a plant-based sausage option on its breakfast menu. It was the sausage patty from Impossible Foods. And some of the commenters just were not happy about this. Oh, yeah, you think? All right, I'm going to read a few of those comments. Uh, Here's Mark in all caps. You can take my pork sausage when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. Three exclamation points. (laughs) Don't tread on my pork. Three more exclamation points. (laughs) Here's Chip, who is a little more polite. You used to serve real things, real butter, real meat, real smiles. Now you want to add fake sausage. Bye-bye, old friend. When you get rid of the imitation sausage, I would like to come back. I like that. I would like to. All right, needless to say, there was a backlash to the backlash as Blue America's keyboard warriors started making fun of the Red America snowflakes who wanted to cancel a menu option. And Cracker Barrel did a really funny post on Instagram. They had a, an impossible sausage holding hands with a pork sausage, and they invited sausage lovers of all persuasion to enjoy all-day breakfast in harmony. Yeah, if only. <laughs> so... This is a funny story, and of course you can find people on the internet saying just about anything, but there is a serious side to this. And, you know, we did a whole episode about plant-based meat, the climate impact, whether it's better for you or not, the economics, but we didn't get into the idea of the culture war, which it seems to be a touchstone of. Yeah, I mean, these days, it feels like everything gets caught up in the culture wars, right? It used to be guns and abortion, (laughs) but now it's whether you say Merry Christmas or whether you state your pronouns or whether you care about global warming. You know, we've really become this polarized nation, so it really isn't surprising to see food becoming another one of these identity issues. We talked about how Americans are going to have to reduce our meat consumption dramatically if the world is going to meet its climate targets, and we had this wonky discussion about how meat substitutes could make a big difference if they could get as tasty, as cheap, and convenient as meat. 
But, you know, it might be that none of that matters if half the country thinks of them as woke left-wing Biden burgers. Right. And it, it's totally irrelevant if what matters is how this is perceived on right and left. So this is a climate story, but it's also a culture story. And it gets a little farther away from the data and the evidence that are kind of our stock and trade. But it does get into how humans make decisions and whether it's possible for us to change our minds or our behaviors. I mean, Mike and I like to think of ourselves as fact people, but food is an emotional issue. It's a visceral issue. So we're going to dig into the culture war, the food war, and the battle of Cracker Barrel. You can pry our facts from our cold, dead hands. I'm Michael Grunwald. <laughs> and I'm Tamar Haspel. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. So, Mike, you and I have both been around for <clears throat> a while, <laughs> and we've seen the culture wars shape up, intensify, change, and infiltrate just about every aspect of life over the last couple of decades. And I know you saw it up close and personal when you were at Politico. And I have always been a policy reporter, but for three decades, I was really in the midst of the politics, too. And most obviously when I was at Politico magazine. Um, and to be honest, it was really this intensification of the culture wars and it's the way it's taken over everything that really soured me on writing and thinking about politics. I mean, what's happening with Cracker Barrel, it's really a perfect metaphor for what's happening throughout America, right? It has nothing to do with data or evidence or logic. Like they don't want the liberal meat, you know, the fake meat intruding on their Red America Cracker Barrel safe space. And obviously the responses that you saw from the left, they weren't about trying to persuade anybody about facts or logic either. They were just about, you know, making fun of the rubes from the heartland, right? And it's a, it's a real problem, this kind of tribalism in, in this country. And I found that when I was writing stories, even when they were dork stories about public policy that we used to always just try to sort of sort through and figure out together um, with a shared set of facts, my readers weren't interested in information. They just wanted ammunition. Back when Politico magazine actually was a magazine, I wrote a cover story about how the culture war was taking over policy. There was this kind of cultural slap fight that we used to have in the, the sort of national backseat over, you know, guns or abortion, but that it had really moved to the front and it was threatening to kind of drive the national car off the road because suddenly we were fighting over climate and education and now food in the same way. Let me just ask you, how long ago was that? That was, I wrote it, was it 2017 or early 2018? Um, so like five years ago. And since then, has it been your perception that it's gotten worse? Absolutely. I mean, it gets worse Every day, right? We we live in constant, remember on Seinfeld, Festivus, the ritual airing of grievances, right? That's our politics. That's our national discourse is just this, you know, this constant state of performative umbrage. But look, I read the big sort, right? And let's face it, when we talk about red America and blue America, we're mostly talking about people who live far apart 
and people who live close together. And the country has become more and more spatially polarized as we've become more politically polarized. And every election, every measure of spatial polarization gets more intense. So now you see entire counties where Democrats are 3% of the vote, and you see entire counties where they're 95% of the vote. And obviously those are rural versus urban counties. We've become really two different Americas, one that's got the bike paths and the composting and NPR, and the other with the pickup trucks and the mega churches and Fox News. So I think that's part of it. And then really, you know, it's where we're getting that news. We used to have these gatekeepers, right? We all watched three network news stations and Walter Cronkite gave us the facts and then we could we could argue about them. But now we're all in our own bubbles. Two thirds of Americans get their news from social media, right? And we can all curate our feeds to keep out the information we don't want to hear. It's not just the masses, right? It's the people who think they know stuff too. It's everybody. And, you know, I think the point about, like, actual spatial living together is a really good one, and the big sort is really interesting. In fact, I've always thought that one of the ways if we really want to tackle polarization in Congress, we make them sit Republican-Democrat, Republican-Democrat. You know, it's so funny how stories of people who disagree actually talking to each other become really moving for us. Like the friendship between Scalia and Ginsburg was like remarkable because two people who disagree could actually be friends. I mean, alert the media. (laughs) But in some ways, I think we expect this, at least to some extent, in politics because it's set up to be adversarial. People are working toward different goals with different values and different ideas. But it has been disheartening to me um, to watch it infiltrate food and every aspect of food. And the things that that drive our ideas that drive where we come down on something seem to be the priors that we came in with. And I was interested in this with regard to beef, because one of the things that struck me about beef is that, you know, here you and I talk about beef all the time. And, you know, your mantra is cows are really, really bad. And and of course, so so much of the defense of beef comes out of people who are tied to it. Either it's their it's their vocation, their scientists, or or their ranchers, um, or they have some connection to it. And so, I kind of wanted to know whether like people who think about beef um, tend to think that it's either all good or it's all bad. Now, there are two major issues with beef. Is it good for human health and is it good for the environment? And those are wildly different questions. They have almost nothing in common. So you wouldn't expect to see sort of complete alignment on those issues by people who are looking into the science. So it seems completely reasonable to me, for example, to decide that beef could be good for the environment because cattle sequester carbon, they, they you know, make quality food out of grass, et cetera, et cetera, but bad for people because of the saturated fat issue. But it turns out when I did this little Twitter poll, and I know it's not scientific, <laughs> 
the vast majority think that either beef is bad for both humans and planet or good for both humans and planet. Right. And of there's course, team beef and there's team not. <laughs> that's right. And and everybody's on a team. And of course, team beef came out of the woodwork to answer the poll, so it's not particularly representative. But but most people that I've dealt with you know, are are of one school or the other, and and you don't usually find people uh, talking about beef that it's good for one and bad for the other. But this is just an example of how the things that we think about food um, are driven by something other than the facts on the ground. Exactly. What's happening in Cracker Barrel is not that, that there are studies being presented about the carbon impact of pork sausages versus impossible sausages. That's clearly not what's going on. People are reacting um, in a tribal way of like, hey, you know, this this kind of uh, thing that's unfamiliar to me is invading my space. Um, but what they has in common with the sort of elite debates of that where you were actually supposed to be discussing facts and logic is that it's not really grounded in facts and logic. There's a lot of wish casting going on. But this is this is how humans are. And so maybe 10 years ago, I think the book came out in 2012, my father gave me a copy of Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And it's about how humans make decisions. And there's a similar book, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, basically makes the same case. And Haidt and Kahneman go into all of the evidence that humans really suck at making fact-based decisions. We're just not good at it at all. So, and I love Haidt's metaphor of the elephant and the rider. Each of us is an elephant and a rider, and the elephant is the sum total of our cultural affiliations, our tribalism, if you will, our intuition, our gut. And when a controversial issue comes down the pike, and you named a couple of them from your days at Politico, take gun control, take abortion, your elephant knows exactly what you think about it because it aligns with your political alignment. And your rider is the rational part, and your rider supposedly is there to evaluate evidence. But it turns out the rider's job is to, as you say, find ammunition, not information. The rider's job is to to try and justify the position that the elephant has already taken. And Dan Kahan at Yale has done some really interesting research on this because, of course, the way that we do this is with confirmation bias. We look for the evidence, quote unquote, that supports our point of view. That's the easy part. The diabolical part is that when we're, you know, we come face to face with evidence that doesn't support our worldview, we have all these cognitive tricks to dismiss it. And one of my favorites is, and you see this playing out all the time, is to dismiss the expert who has put forward this opinion. And Kahan did this really interesting experiment where he took three pictures of three quote-unquote experts. And you know, they're experts. They were old white guys in suits. And and I... Like the old gatekeepers. <laughs> that's right. Exactly like the old gatekeepers. And they all had basically very similar resumes. And then, you know, bogus quotes were attributed to them. And the subjects in the experiment were asked to rate the credibility. And of course, and you can predict this going in, they rated the ones who agreed with them as credible and the ones who disagreed with them as much 
less credible. But if you think about human history, it makes total sense. I mean, in evolutionary scale from from the primordial ooze to today, up until approximately evolutionary time last Thursday, we didn't have data. All we had was our families, our tribes, our personal experience. So, of course, we have this decision-making apparatus that's optimized for those things. And we are having one hell of a time trying to shoehorn data into that apparatus. Tamara, that's it's such a great point. I covered a lot of Donald Trump's rallies in 2016, you know, where he would be talking about, uh, you know, oh, the the guys kneeling at the you know NFL games um, and boo and transgender bathrooms boo and and you know whatever the enemy of the day was obviously a lot about Mexicans and immigrants the people there they had fun it was enjoyable they were with their people and uh, they had a common enemy and and it was like you know there was a real bonding experience we we're social animals yeah i joked about this back when we did local food and i talked about how like going to the farmers market is in some ways like going to a nascar rally this is what we're talking about right totally. you get to be with your tribe you agree with your tribe and it's even better when there's the anti tribe that you don't like and and it's absolutely true and a lot of people who come to these decisions about food or you know about whether Cracker Barrel puts the, the impossible sausage on their menu aren't sorting through the evidence. They aren't engaging in confirmation bias. But it's so easy for the question, okay, well, well, what's true? Um, morphs into the question in a complex world, who do I trust to tell me what's true? And I mean it works for me too. For you know, on food-based issues, I trust that I can come to a decision. But if you ask me about, you know, Afghanistan or how to fix health insurance, I I got no idea. And I look to people I trust to sort of help me understand those issues. And of course, the people you trust are always people who are like-minded, and that's how silos are born. I guess we should talk about, you know, can minds change? How do minds change? And whether it's possible to change our behaviors and particularly our food behaviors, since we've talked about how important that is, if we don't change our minds? I think it's a really important question. So let's talk about mind changing. And, you know, it's funny. When we talk about mind changing, it's almost always in the context of other people's minds. So I want to ask you guys a question. And Mike, I want to ask you too. When was the last time you changed your mind? And I'm talking about, you know, an issue of substance, not chicken or fish or, you know, elliptical or treadmill. In last week's show, by the end of the episode, I had changed my mind about Starbucks. (laughs) So I also changed my mind on that episode, too, about using plant-based milk in smoothies because I tasted them and we talked about the implications. And so hopefully you and I are out there trying to change our minds. I give this talk in... Uh, in all kinds of venues, and sometimes there are hundreds of people, occasionally there are thousands of people, and I ask the question, okay, have you changed your mind on an issue of substance in the last year? In a room of, you know, hundreds of people, there will be a smattering of hands that go up. If you're listening to this, I want you to seriously think about it, because we all have this idea that we are the flexible people who 
who change our minds. But the reality is changing your mind is hard. And, you know, ever since I read The Righteous Mind, I will tell you, it absolutely scared the bejesus out of me because it persuaded me that humans suck at evidence-based decisions, yet it's my job to evaluate evidence and come to decisions. And I'm human and I'm susceptible to this too. And so I started really looking for opportunities to change my mind. And, you know, I have a list of a bunch of things I've changed my mind on over the last, you know, 10 basically years that I've been writing this column. But it's not a super long list, and I'm trying. If you're not trying, it's a really difficult thing to do. And so, you know, the question is, are people going to change their mind? And I'm afraid that they're probably not. Well, but public opinion does change, right? In our political system, it almost seems like every two years people change their mind. It's like, oh, you know, we're electing Obama in 2008. And then 2010, it's like, ah, we hate Obama. It's like, you know, we're going to have a Republican landslide. And then 2012, we're back to Obama again. And 2014, it's another Republican landslide. Something's changing, right? Is it just like really good advertising? Is it, uh, you know, people actually watching what's happening in the world and changing their mind? What's going on? I don't think there's like an aha moment where people change their mind most of the time. I think most of the time, because our views are so aligned with our values and our cultural affiliations, that what happens is sort of the zeitgeist changes under us. And slowly and sometimes imperceptibly, although sometimes, you know, triggered by current events, that minds change. And, you know, my favorite example is gay marriage. Like, 30 years ago, um, it was not within, you know, the Overton window of things that were going to be feasible. And slowly, people changed their minds. And if you look at the polling over the years, it just went up and up and up, the, the percentage of people who were in favor of gay marriage. And why did that change? Well, certainly, there was a whole lot of outreach in the gay community. And, you know, we started to see gay people just being portrayed as ordinary people. And and I think the way minds change is first that this position that you take at the dinner table um, softens and you don't maybe feel it as acutely as you used to. And then maybe you don't think about it for a while to give yourself some space to go neutral, and then all of a sudden you you find yourself sort of doing the creepy crawl onto the other side. But but let me jump in a little bit with my Politico hat <laughs> just to respond to the gay marriage issue. That's generally right, but there was also one very quick change in gay marriage, and it, it happened very differently. And that was in the African-American community, which gay marriage pulled terribly uh, among Blacks until President Obama came out for gay marriage. And suddenly there was a shocking shift in the polling, which to me suggests the importance of sort of these elite thought leaders, or you could even call them tribal leaders. And maybe Cracker Barrel is a tribal leader, right? To me, that's why it's so important that Cracker Barrel is holding its ground because, you know, people do take cues from within their tribe. And obviously Cracker Barrel is 
part of Red America, spatially and politically. And what that does, what Crack Barrel's decision has done is taken one small step to normalize plant-based meat. It's not this thing people fight about. It's just a menu option that you can choose or not choose. Exactly. I mean, you see it in politics, obviously, right, where the Republican Party was all for the Iraq war and then Trump just came around and decided the Iraq war was bad. And so now, of course, the Iraq war is bad. But to bring it more towards our world, I think about electric vehicles, um, which back when I was first writing about it, when I was doing my last book, they were Obama cars. I'm in a very blue neighborhood, and it's almost a third electric vehicles. And there are huge swaths of red America where you won't see any. South Park did an episode about Priuses, and instead of emitting, emitting smog, they were emitting smug. Right. That's really you know, funny. the way those of us in, you know, who live in blue America, you know, feel really great about ourselves because of what we drive. We feel we're saving the earth. And that's how it was seen, really, as this kind of like, you know, a feet liberal green driving. Until recently, there were really two big changes, I think. One is Elon Musk, you know, who's really in many ways the leader of the electric vehicle revolution has sort of come out as this big red America hero, um, you know, trashing Biden. Um, and uh, I'm going to buy Twitter to, you know, to stop these, these left-wing cancellations. And suddenly he's a hero. I think that could do more than anything else to make electric vehicles go mainstream. And at the same time, then you've got the Ford F-150 Lightning, right? The Ford I F-1- want one of those so bad. <laughs> the, the ultimate symbol of, you know, red America driving. Um, now they're going to go electric. That, you know, Ford could be like Cracker Barrel and can really introduce this to a new set of customers. And those are sort of the big splashy ways that I think minds can change if they sort of go along with these things. But I also think that there are some really non-splashy, quiet ways that that minds change. Just the other day, I was reading about a study that they did in Sweden where they changed uh, the menus in the kids' schools to be more climate friendly. And they, you know, they wanted to see if there was more food waste, if the kids didn't eat the stuff, whatever it was. But the key was they kept the whole thing on the QT and nobody noticed. (laughs) And the kids just ate their meals and there wasn't more food waste. And it just became this thing that they did. And, you know, look at some of the things that are happening in the Midwest when obviously some of the the right-leaning communities, farming communities in in the Midwest are facing these changing weather conditions and that farmers really want to farm in a way that will help them continue to get yields and build soil in these changing conditions. And those things are happening without anyone saying the word climate change. And the hot farm episode that we cross-posted on on Climavores, and if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to that, it's really interesting, so go back and listen to that, um, was all about that. So I think that there are a lot of things that just are going to happen sort of under the radar and and maybe those will bring some people along with them. I agree with that, but I, I want to sort of underscore what we're saying um, because 
these sort of organic decisions that are in your minds that are changing, it's not entirely organic. It starts with decisions that are being made by policymakers, by decision makers, right? By Ford, by Cracker Barrel. These decisions aren't being made like, oh, you know, maybe maybe plant-based meat isn't so bad because I happen to see it in my grocery aisle. The, the grocer has to make that decision to put it in the meat aisle and not to put it in the sort of like the vegan ghetto. And these are really important decisions that have to be made with some intentionality. Here's the thing. We've talked about a few ways that maybe people's minds will change. And let's be clear, there's there's not a, a robust body of research on how people can change other people's minds, and people do study it. Of all the things we've talked about, you know, the thing that hasn't changed people's minds is better access to facts. Because facts are just so stubbornly, relentlessly unpersuasive. And and that sort of leaves us with a question, okay, well, we're journalists. We traffic in facts. We open the show by saying, okay, well, this is going to be a little bit different from our usual MO where we dig up the facts. So it kind of raises the question, you know, what the hell are we doing here? Right. We've agreed that facts aren't going to really change people's minds. And we should say up front that probably the most important thing um, for getting people to drive a Tesla is for it to be awesome, right? Uh, and ultimately for electric vehicles to be more affordable. And we've seen how government is helping with that with the, the new Inflation Reduction Act, which has huge amounts of money for climate and is not being sold as a climate mm -hmm. bill, right? right? It's being sold as like, oh, we're going to, you know, tax corporations and we're going to, you know, make your prescription drugs cheaper. And oh, by the way, here's $370 billion for the climate. It's happening, you know, not organically. It's happening from top down and not through an appeal to changing minds just by doing stuff. And I think it's going to be in many ways the same in the plant-based meat. It's going to have to be taste, cost, convenience. Um, that's going to have to get better and better, and government can help with that. But I think what we're also acknowledging is that that's not going to be enough, that there's going to be this kind of, call it irrational, call it emotional, call it tribal, um, but there's going to be this other cultural aspect to this that these companies are going to have to think about really seriously, and if they ignore it at their peril. Okay, so... Let's talk about the ways we might see this landscape changing. So I've already talked about how the fact that humans are really lousy at evaluating facts scared the bejesus out of me. And I suspect that there are some people out there listening who are also a little taken aback by this because we we think that we're good at evaluating facts. We think we're we're good at 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 a reason based decision, and that's what the kind of decision it feels like we're making, even when our gut is driving absolutely everything. And so, knowing this and going into a job where I'm supposed to evaluate facts. I, I developed a list of strategies that I employ to try and make sure that I don't go down my own rabbit hole. And, you know, in some ways, Mike, you and I have 
a little bit of a different incentive structure from other people because we really do have a professional investment in being right, and we pay the price if we're wrong about something. And because we're invested in being right, I started thinking about how I can ensure that I am not engaging in motivated reasoning. And so the first thing I do when I'm writing a column, I'm taking a stand, I'm paid to have an opinion, which is almost enough to make me believe there is a God. And I find the smartest person I can find who disagrees with me. And I send him an email and I say, hey, would you talk to me about this? And I'm always very straightforward about how my opinion is this, but I really want to represent the other side. And it has been so eye-opening for me. And I wouldn't say that those conversations have changed my mind per se, but what they do is soften my position. They make me realize that there are lots of well-intentioned people who believe different things from the things that I believe, and that prevents me from digging my heels in. So the second thing I do is I try and make the strongest case for the position I don't hold. And, you know, when I give this talk, I always, I put up a picture of my dad. And my dad was always willing to take any side of any issue just for the exercise of hashing it out, because that's how he learned. And I will tell you, it's not an endearing human characteristic. <laughs> I th it sounds endearing to me. I don't know. But I will tell you, you know, that intellectual humiliation comes when you lose an argument to someone who's making an argument he doesn't even believe in. But I guess growing up with my dad made me sort of internalize the idea that that there are usually two reasonable sides to most issues. And, of course, the opposite of this is you see people all the time engaging in these sort of straw man kinds of arguments where they put up the weak or the stupid argument <laughs> and say, look how weak and stupid this position is because they're not engaging with the really strong arguments. And, you know, the, my list is, is pretty long, but the two more, I think, are worth mentioning. Number one, I try and sort of police my side. So if I see somebody who is on, you know, my side of the issue sort of overstep or overreach um, or make claims that go beyond what I think is reasonable, I'll try and say that out loud. Part of it is it keeps me on the straight and narrow and I don't overreach, but part of it is that, you know, if people we trust, people who sort of are like-minded, who are on our side, are willing to step in and say, hey, I don't think that's cool or I don't think that's right. I think that's meaningful. And the last strategy I'll add is that I I try and be kind. And it doesn't always work sometimes. My temper gets the better of me because, you know, sometimes people say really annoying stuff on Twitter. But, but I find that being kind and assuming good faith is another way to not paint yourself in an ideological box. Because once you're mean to people and once you call them names, it's, it makes it really hard to change your mind. And, you know, the net of all of this and the net of this talk about mind changing is that if we want better discourse, if we want 
better conversations about plant-based meat and anything else, I think we all have to think a little bit less about being persuasive and a little bit more about being persuadable. And I'm not kidding myself that people are going to listen to this and, and all of a sudden become persuadable. But I'm hoping that, you know, little by little, maybe we can do better at public discourse. It's really kind of a beautiful way of looking it's at the world. It's a pipe dream, say it, yeah, Mike. <laughs> well, yeah. I think you've given sort of great advice for our listeners, um, and you've given great advice for our fellow journalists who don't really follow those those rules very well often. I just don't think that's, uh, that's going to work for 350 million people, um, partly because what I was saying, that being part of a tribe is fun. It's yeah, rewarding. Yeah, it totally is. And like policing your tribe is not fun. The people you talk to all the time are yelling at you and that's not mm -hmm. fun. Uh, it's mm -hmm. more fun to be like yelling at the enemy who, uh, who you don't really have to deal with face to face. This is why I'm like an unemployed guy with a podcast and trying to write a book instead of you and working, me both. <laughs> instead yeah. of, instead of working for, you know, a, and having a steady paycheck at Politico magazine. It's because it, it started to feel useless. I was trying to, force facts down people's throats when they didn't want them. And uh, and I think that's I think that's a problem. And I'm not sure it's sort of a surmountable one. I should also say, and the government providing, you know, research funding to help these plant-based meat companies get better, just like they did for solar and wind and LED lighting and electric vehicles, not because, you know, for a public policy reason that it's going to be better for the climate, it's going to ultimately save people money. Um, these are great reasons for government to do it. And we've seen that some members of government are capable of trying to do the right thing and and passing this kind of thing. That seems to be how, how it's going to happen. Like You see, Beyond Meat is not running ads saying like, hey, you know, save the planet, be a good person. They're showing Serena Williams and Chris Paul, um, you know, and talking about how this is going to make you an awesome, awesome athlete. And I think the sort of traditional ways that people are persuaded through advertising and through elite signaling is probably our best hope rather than this idea that we're just going to change people's mind. Um, I should tell like a confession for me is, uh, like a lot of my friends tell me that like, oh, you know, you were writing about solar and electric vehicles really early. You were so prescient. You saw how they were going to take off. I was not prescient. I was wrong. I thought I thought solar would take off much faster than it has. And electric vehicles, you know, they're now 5% of our of of sales in America, I thought they would be much more than by now because I fell into that trap of thinking like, oh, well, it's just as good and in some cases better. And once it gets cheap, it's going to be great. Um, and I forgot about these cultural issues. I didn't realize how sticky our behaviors are, how no matter where your mind is, people do things the way they do them. And yes, it's really do. hard to get them to change. And, you know, when we were talking about this before the show and we were hashing out, like, scenarios where plant-based meat might take off, and you were talking about some of those things, and our producer, Stephen, says his scenario is that Joe Rogan decides that plant-based meat is awesome, and then all of a sudden all those followers come along. And, you know, I'm sort of sorry to report that my scenario <laughs> is that, you know, other things come along, people just forget about it. Beef is getting very expensive, and, you know, of course, we don't know whether that will continue, but 
but the 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 herd is being culled right now and uh and all of a sudden it just doesn't seem so important and eh, people just start to eat it and 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 not even think about it so much so i have this sort of path of least resistance laissez faire route to plant based meat acceptance and 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 you have the joe rogan ron desantis route to to acceptance okay but i want to i before we go I got to ask you this because uh, some of my friends on Twitter were talking about making a long bet. So a bet that goes out like a decade. And they were talking about the extent to which uh, plant-based meats will replace real meat or so that the share of total meat that plant-based meat will have in 2030. So right now, just for reference, that share is like about a percent and a half. And by 2030, the cutoff that they were proposing is 10%. And so let's call it, do you think by 2030, plant-based meat will have a 10% market share? Well, look, I hate predictions, right? Especially <laughs> about the future, like uh, like Yogi Berra said. Look, my my knee jerk instinct is yes because I believe in technology. I think uh, you know it's going to get better and cheaper, and uh, I think there will be government assistance. I think there will be a, a global sort of you know money is going to rush into this because there is a, a lot of momentum behind it. Um, but that said. I am really worried about this Cracker Barrel problem um, because, like we said, we need to reduce, particularly our beef consumption in the in the rich world. We need to reduce it fifty percent by twenty fifty. That's already just unbelievably hard. We're going to need meat substitutes because meat is awesome, and I see what's happening with you know, yeah, renewable energy is really taking off, but you do see you don't see it as much in red America. Um, and you do like, I see the, have you seen the rolling coal, right? Yeah. Have you seen these, right? These guys yeah. who trick out their, their trucks to, uh, to basically Diesels. pollute yeah. more to just to own the libs to say like, you know, screw you and your green vehicles. Um, and we see it on, in our Twitter world, in our food world, we see it with food, right? Where, uh, you know, people, yeah, you you want your plant-based meat? I'm going to eat twice as much beef. And look, if we're talking about reducing beef consumption 50%, if 50% of the country is eating twice as much, I'm not quite sure how we do it. I have great faith in the technological side of this. I am really worried about the culture side. So there you have it. Mike is very worried about the cultural side. And Tamar thinks people are just going to move on and stop caring about this and 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 head on to, to more interesting issues. Oh, man, but I hope you're right. I hope I'm right, too. But if we both have to take the long bet, we're both going to bet that plant-based meat is at least 10% market share by 2030. And that's the last word on the Cracker Barrel incident. <laughs> Climavores is a production of Postscript Media. 
And we want to know what you're thinking. The show is about addressing your questions, so we need to know what they are. Give us a call. Leave us a message. 508-377-3449. Or we also answer emails at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. Your question might be on one of our upcoming episodes. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey are the executive producers with Ann Bailey as senior editor. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is managing producer and Dalvin Abouage is associate producer. Engineering is done by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfranc. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. We appreciate their support, and we appreciate yours. The best way you can spread the word is by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And of course, if if you have somebody else in your life that you think would enjoy listening to us, please send them a link. And we will be back next week with a new show. Thank you.